0: Hello and welcome to this week's episode. I'm just going to start out by saying a big thank you to my friend Gaspar Senna for the new theme tune which he recorded during this pandemic lockdown. I really like it and I hope you do too. This week is going to be another special episode, this time a crossover with the Age of Napoleon podcast which I've been a fan of for a while now. If you are new to the 21st Rewrite, this is a show about the iconic screenplays of the 21st century and I'm really glad you were able to listen today. We're going to take a very detailed look at Master and Commander, The Far Side of the World, its characters, how it's constructed, and of course its historical accuracy and what it can teach us. If you would like to hear more episodes like this one, perhaps take a look at our Gladiator episode with SDSU film professor Stuart Voitilla, or our breakdown of Terence Malick's The New World. Make sure you subscribe, and that way you won't miss any episodes. That's all from me by way of introduction, so without further ado, let's listen to the episode. Hello and welcome to the 21st Rewrite, the podcast about screenplays and the process of writing them. I'm William Coldwell, and this week I'm joined by a very special guest, Everett Rummage, who is the host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Everett, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: So today we've decided to talk about Master and Commander, The Far Side of the World, the film from 2003, directed by Peter Weir and written by Peter Weir and John Coley. This is probably the only Napoleonic-era film that we could really find. There are some films kind of set in that time period as well that don't really touch upon the war, but Master and Commander is set during the Napoleonic Wars in the British Navy and with the French as the main adversary. So it's kind of an outlier, I suppose, for at least the 21st century. There haven't really been that many films that have delved into the Napoleonic Wars. I don't know if you have any thoughts on why that might be.
1: Well, the uh, the kind of romantic explanation of that is that the Napoleonic Wars are cursed when it comes to film because of Stanley Kubrick's famous Napoleon biopic, which he tried to make on several different occasions and never quite came together. And it's sometimes considered like one of the great unshot scripts out there. So the thinking with some people is if Kubrick couldn't do it, then, you know, who can Yeah, Uh, I think there's also just, you know, practically speaking, you know, you're talking about something set on land. You're talking about like tens of thousands of extras, maybe, or CGI. They got to learn to march in in line on the on the ocean. Obviously, then there's a whole other set of problems you got to deal with. You know, they're on wooden ships. Um, So it's an undertaking to film. I kind of don't envy people who take it on.
0: No, I was trying to think about this for myself as well. And I think budget was... The first thing that came to mind, it's a wide-ranging topic as well. You know, you've got wars going on in all over Europe, huge armies. There would obviously be budgetary reasons to avoid these kind of films. But the other thing I was thinking about, and it really ties into Master and Commander, because The Far Side of the World, the book, was about the main character, Jack Aubrey's ship, chasing down an American frigate. (laughs) Right, right. Which, of course, they decided to change because they didn't want to insult or offend American audiences. But the Napoleonic Wars really don't have too much American involvement as well in the same way. So while there's an interest in doing things from the Russian side with war and peace, and then the British side and the French side, it doesn't really tie into American history in the same way that. Americans, they're very proud of their War of Independence, but the War of 1812 isn't really right. talked about that much over here. And it doesn't really fit into that whole understanding of of history that Americans have. And often the wars against Napoleon are kind of portrayed as this fight against tyranny, which has really been supplanted with World War II stories. Now, if you need to find a tyrant to root against, you can just go to Hitler.
1: Mm-hmm. And I think, I mean, well, for starters, I should I should say that personally, I've always really wanted to see a good Battle of New Orleans movie. It's a great story, and there's never been a good movie made about it. But that aside, yeah, the War of 1812 was very disappointing for the Americans and humiliating. And, you know, I don't think there's a lot of audiences who want to see the White House burning down. <laughs> I don't think there's a lot of audiences who want to see, you know, American soldiers, you know, running in terror, which is a lot of what happened in that war. It, you know, it was one of the... It actually is. It's funny. It's a classic American thing, you know, slacking off and then uh, paying for it and then pulling it out of the fire at the last minute, which is exactly what we did in that war. To Britain, especially looking at the Royal Navy, it's such a formative national experience and part of the national mythos. But here it's uh, I mean, Americans know who Napoleon is, but as I've discovered beyond that, um, there's a lot of curiosity. So I think it's it's just kind of an obscure topic, probably, to most Hollywood people.
0: Yeah, and I think it's notable that even though this was produced in the United States and had funding from Miramax, the director is Australian, the, the screenwriter is Scottish, it's adapting the works of a British writer, and then most of the cast and crew are British, and of course, Russell Crowe. Yeah, it certainly feels like it was aimed at that and the fact that it didn't really make the money that they were hoping it was. Master and Commander is often called the best first film in a series that never got made Mm -hmm. because it it shows a lot of potential there, but it just didn't quite make enough money at the box office for the future investment in a sequel, which seems very unfortunate really in, in hindsight. Yeah, I mean, I guess we should probably
1: we've gone far enough now that we should probably say what we thought of the movie. Mm-hmm. Um for, for me personally, this is one of my all-time favorites. I don't think it has maybe some of the depth that some fancy art house movie has, but you know, as someone who studies this stuff, it is really fun and refreshing to see it depicted well on screen. And there's some fun performances, some really beautiful cinematography. But I really enjoyed it.
0: I completely agree, actually. And uh, in doing my research for this, I was reading um, some of the criticisms of the film that came out around the time as well. And it seems like the criticism was really around how they were going to portray Aubrey and Mataran. People who were disappointed with it tended to be people who knew the characters from the books very well, and they were disappointed in how they were kind of simplified. But the fact of screenwriting is you need to be really economical on the page. You have to try and get across as much information as is pertinent in the shortest amount of time. And you don't really have the freedom to do what Patrick O'Brien was doing in his books, where you'd have these long conversations in a concert hall or at a restaurant or something like that, where the officers could talk amongst themselves. This had to be a film. And the benefits of it being a film were essentially the budget, the fact that they could recreate the type of naval warfare and bring it to life in a way that we hadn't really seen before. This is by far superior to most of the kind of recreations you'll see in documentaries or things that have smaller budgets. But I also really enjoyed the story overall and the way it portrays these two these two figures who both represent an aspect of the culture that the british overseas expansion and the navy had created which is aubrey who is a horatio nelson type it's charge straight at the enemy very brave a risk taker mathematically minded astronomically minded but essentially a warrior at heart and then on the other side you also have this awakening of science and the inheritance of the art and culture which mataran represents And just going back to what you were saying about its position in Britain, so I grew up on the Isle of Wight, which is in the south of the United Kingdom, and it's an island that is separated from the mainland by a small stretch of water called the Solent, and on the other side of the Solent is Portsmouth. So I grew up right in front of Portsmouth. Uh, My uncle was in the Navy, my cousins were in the Navy, and that was why they lived in Portsmouth as well one of my earliest memories is going to the HMS Victory and on a school trip and learning about Napoleonic warfare and the the Battle of Trafalgar. It certainly does make more sense, I think, to a British audience. I think we're just introduced to this stuff earlier on and Admiral Nelson is, of course, a national icon, probably the most important national figure from that point up until Winston Churchill. Probably mm-hmm. in terms of just representing Britain's ability to stave off invasion and being conquered by other countries.
1: No, that's a good point. I mean, it's hard to, especially, I think this is less true now as societies become less militaristic, but I think it's almost hard for us to grasp what a towering figure Nelson was, especially at the time. There's a great article I read once, which I'm blanking on the author's name now, unfortunately. But it's about uh, how uh, you read, like, letters and diary entries of, of men from that era, young British men. After Nelson was killed, they, they get into these kind of uh, almost uh, competitive grief. Guy writes to his friend and says, oh, I've been inconsolable for two weeks. I haven't eaten anything mm. because our, our country's greatest hero is gone. His friend will write back and says, oh, two weeks. Yeah, I, I've been uh, about to kill myself, actually. So I'm, I'm hurting even more than you are, friend. Uh, it's just, you know... The idea that you know these people are you know weeping in public and these kind of really over the top emotional displays that you would think that in that era would be you know considered unmanly, but they, it wasn't because it was you know about patriotism and war. They get into it a bit in the in the script more than on the uh, in the uh, actual film itself, but the there is kind of a strange 18th century masculinity is not the same as it is now, and so that's why there's you know one of the guys on the boats a poet and mm-hmm. one of them is. You know, they're playing their classical music and they're collecting beetles. And it's not, you know, it's not normally what you think of when you think of a warrior or a soldier. But back then, that actually, that was part of the ideal. Things have changed.
0: Yeah, I think one thing we should talk about maybe as our next step into this is the difference between the screenplay itself and the film. The screenplay is, is quite a challenging work, to be honest. I was very surprised being someone who has written projects that are set in historical time periods, and having read historical screenplays, mainly ones that have been produced in America, such as Gladiator, they tend to be really straightforward in terms of not giving too much description, just giving you what the characters say. They tend to be in modern English, and it was very surprising to be so overwhelmed with naval terminology in the screenplay itself. This wasn't just in the dialogue, but it it was also in the action lines. It was in the direction Mm -hmm. of where characters needed to be standing and what they needed to be doing. There was constant reference to different parts of the ship. And more than once, I had to pause my reading and go and get the (laughs) dictionary and just check exactly what they were talking about, which I thought was very interesting for a screenplay.
1: I was very pleasantly surprised by that. One of the things I like so much about this movie is that it feels like it's not just about, you know, obviously it's about the story of chasing the ship, and it's about the characters, uh, especially the the interplay between the, the doctor and the captain. Um, but in a lot of ways, it's also just kind of a portrait of the ship. And that they don't give short shrift to that at all. It's That's almost, I would say, as important as the, you know, the more traditional elements of filmmaking. And they, they seem to take that very seriously. And I think it really, the film really benefits from that. It's part of what makes it unique.
0: Had you read any of the Master and Commander series before we, we started researching this?
1: Uh, I hadn't. I, I did read the, um, well, I, I've started reading. I'm not finished with it yet. One of the novels that this is based on.
0: Yeah, I, I really like to pride myself on the 21st rewrite and actually going and reading the book that a film is based on. However, with Master and Commander, it simply is impossible, because they didn't just take one of the books and adapt that plot into a film, but this seemed to have drawn from, I think they said, four books in particular, The Far Side of the World being one of those books was where the plot was mainly taken from. And there's 20 books in the series, and all of them are vast novels, full of this extreme depth in... Naval terminology in the use of multiple languages, scientific terminology, and 19th century English. They are hard things to read, but they're also a joy to read for people who care about those kind of details and offer a a certain engrossing experience. Essentially, it's not simplifying the past. It presents it to you in all of its complexity, and it's up to you to unravel that and learn about it for yourself. And it seemed like that was what John Colley was doing in his screenplay as well. He was taking some of the voice of the books themselves and putting that onto the page, even though that might not be the recommendation for normal screenwriters. It certainly made it a very compelling read. And you can imagine that actors, especially like Russell Crowe, who really like to get involved with the characters that they are portraying, there was a wealth of material in the screenplay for him to draw from without him necessarily having to go and read all of those books to, to get a sense of who the character was.
1: Yeah, I think it's very well put. I think that you really hit the nail on the head with uh, the, the word engrossing, I think is, you know, there's a lot there to uh, unravel if you, if you so choose. It actually reminded me a lot of good science fiction. I think if you're you know, watching, a, I don't know, an episode of Star Trek or something and you really want to delve into the science and look up every term that they're using, you can do that and figure out what they're talking about. Or if you just want to kind of move along with the story and take everything at face value and not, not worry too much about understanding the complexities, you can do that too. And I guess, well, maybe it depends on the type of mind you have, but I think it's attractive to a lot of people. The idea that there are layers and there is stuff that you can you can dig into it and it rewards you.
0: One of the things that's really curious as well is that you've got these two main characters. You've got Jack Aubrey, who is the naval captain. He's, he's a leader, a natural-born leader, I suppose, is one way to describe him. He does have his interests that, as you've mentioned, he, he plays violin. There's certain aspects to his character that suggest more class and culture than perhaps just a grunt. He's not just like a foot soldier or anything like that. He is, he's an officer class type individual who's grown up in the higher strata of English society. But when he's compared to his counterpart, who is Stephen Mataran, the, the ship's physician, you see this this huge difference between the two characters and their, their approaches to life and the upbringings that they've had. And I think that was, for me, the, the way into the story was really with Mataran, because there's some kind of superficial similarities with him that I share, because I, I speak Spanish and Catalan, which is Mataran's uh, first language is, is Catalan, having been raised in Catalonia, but he's also an Irishman, and I lived in Ireland as well. <laughs> so there's just these kind of interesting things where it's like, oh, Mataran is, he's, he's almost an early 19th century version of myself, which I thought was kind of interesting, because I'm not the, the Jack Aubrey type and having those two characters i think it allows the audience to to get into the story in a way that isn't making this just a war film it's not just all about the battles and the chase but also about the world that they inhabit Stephen is the one who is aware of what's going on in the environment around them and I think their big detour to the Galapagos Islands is one of the reasons why this film stands out so firmly in our memories, is is mm-hmm. because of that, that brief respite from the the drudgery of being on board the ship and, and the difficulties of survival, and then suddenly everyone discovering this whole new world that hasn't really been studied or explained to anyone.
1: And that, to me, um, that gets at the heart of one of the main reasons I find this whole period so interesting, which is something that you really you really get a taste of when you read the primary sources particularly the british and french primary sources these people i mean they were they were like us in a lot of ways they they thought of themselves as modern people they they prided themselves on being sort of forward thinking and having good strong values and sort of putting aside sort of the barbarous past and then you find yourself you know there at a time where there there is a lot of change and there is kind of a new world being born And it's not what they hoped it would be. It's a very brutal new world, very hierarchical. I I wish we'd seen more of, you know, Maturin becoming disillusioned with the French Revolution because men like him, that was a very stark transition to go from, oh, finally, one of these old corrupt governments is going away and something new is coming in. And then to see that turn into blood and then a new form of monarchy rising up after that. Disillusioned a lot of people, and I think you can kind of get hints of that from the way they talk about Bonaparte. But that's what makes the interplay between the characters interesting, and it, it illuminates that larger conflict between these Enlightenment ideals and this idea of modernity and science, and rationalism transforming the world, but then also bringing into birth much more terrible ways of people killing each other. And how do you reconcile that? And that's that's a question in the movie, and it's a question in history. And that's what I think makes good historical fiction is when the fiction can kind of illuminate and, and mirror some of the stuff that we see in history.
0: I think one of the ways to make historical fiction compelling is to never pretend that the characters are aware of what is to come. <laughs> There's some interesting subtext, I think, in this Master and Commander screenplay. I'm not too familiar with how the extent to which they, this gets discussed in the books, I imagine, in much more depth. But in the screenplay, at least, there is this sense that they're not entirely aware that this is just a fragmentary moment in history, that this is all about to be swept away by the invention of steam power. And we, with hindsight, know about this. But there's a point where Aubrey is marveling at the Acheron, the ship that they are chasing after the French one and saying it's just a marvel of modern design. And he's just fascinated by the ship that his enemy has. And it would be easy for us to just think of it as as something really, really simple. It's just a a boat to us. But to someone who knows the intricacies of, of the boats and has grown up around it all his life, he's seeing this gradual advance in technology that has created the Acheron. But he has no sense of what's to come either. Everything just feels like a world that they firmly live in.
1: And that's something that, you know, I think is hard for us to wrap our heads around a little bit. The idea that a wooden sailing ship being on the cutting edge of science. Mm. People have been sailing in wooden ships on the sea for thousands of years by that time. What's the big deal? But, you know, as I think they did a decent job of illustrating in the movie. You know, there is science that goes into this. And more than science, there's the human capital of you know how do you create men who are capable of doing astronomical navigation on the fly and maintaining these um, you know various systems on the ship? You know he he says um, in the in the script you know mind your logarithms to yeah. the to the kid. You did have to know logarithms to do this stuff. You did have to know calculus and advanced geometry, and you know it was kind of a, a new breed of man that they were creating to do these more professional engineering, science-y jobs in the military. Napoleon himself came out of that same type of training program, in his case, for the, the field artillery rather than for uh, the Navy. We tend to think of technology today as gadgets. And back then, some of these sort of human organizational things were a lot more important. And so, you know, in a certain way that the HMS Surprise, the Asheron, these are, you know, it's the equivalent of a spaceship or something to us. It's a, it's a very advanced, cutting-edge, Piece of technology that the government had spent a lot of money to create
0: yeah and that one of the wonderful things about it though is it's still rooted enough in the natural world that they're able to repair the ship as they go if they can pull into a harbor and cut down a tree they can repair a broken mast or they can repair it on the fly which just wouldn't be possible once you <laughs> you know once they moved to to steam power you needed this globalized system with coal available all around the world in order to refuel but at this point there's still this ability to kind of go back to nature to go back to roots and take that and transform it and so a lot of these sailors on the ship have incredible knowledge of carpentry and um, you know they're able to repair sails when a cannonball flies through one and it's just fascinating that the technology is in the mind it's it's education it's it's teaching all of them on a very practical level. And then you also have this interesting aspect with Mataran, who is the ship's doctor, because this is almost the perfect training school for a physician at the time as well, is he's going to see a lot of damaged bodies over the course of just one voyage at sea, let alone the the numerous voyages he's meant to have done with Aubrey up to the moment where this film starts. And so he's expanding his knowledge of medicine as he goes. And there's a suggestion that the naval medicine brought a lot of understanding of different surgeries and different conditions humans could get, like scurvy, and that it was throughout this century that most of those threats were eliminated as the ship's doctors learned about these conditions.
1: And I think, um, you know, that, that same interplay is present where, you know, this is a ship where, you know, Maturin, it seems like... They love to tease you with the idea that he might be close to inventing the theory of evolution. Yes. You know, maybe if they had one more day on the Galapagos. And then on the same ship with a guy like that, you've got this superstition over the Jonah. They're reading these Bible verses in hushed tones. And it's that doesn't seem very modern. It always, you know, again, that's something that, that keeps bringing me back to this era is that interplay between things that could almost be taken from our modern world and then things that seem so alien and ancient and they're right there side by side you know in this very small area again that's something that it's you know it's great it's a great device on the screen and it's also it, it reflects something that's that's real in history
0: i really like the subtext as well around that where mataran he has become disillusioned with revolutions and but he also warns jack against becoming a tyrant he says every tyrants used these excuses in the past from nero to napoleon But it's also the fact that alongside that theory of evolution that he's almost, as we we think he's almost about to stumble upon it, there's also that sense that hierarchies are inbuilt into nature and that all of the world around him, all of this stuff he's studying is actually reflecting the fact that there has been a survival of the fittest going on, not just in human cultures and not just in The differences between france and britain and ireland at this time but that it's something at the heart of all of the interplay between all of the different species that there will be certain individuals that stand out in certain respects and that it's all part of this big giant hierarchy and i think that's what if mataran is science then aubrey is intuition and Mm. he will he will change his approach based on what he feels to be right as opposed to going and checking against his figures or against a book.
1: Mm. And I think that that's so great because that's how Enlightenment scientists saw the world, is that things were ordered and that it was a matter of just discovering what the order was to, to unlock the secrets of how the world operates. As the 18th century turned to the 19th century, they did start to turn that ethos towards what we would call social science and political science. And I, I I love that the movie does seem to you know, the world in the movie operates the way that the characters believe the world operates. And so I, I think that's a that's a fun way to get into that mindset.
0: There is still a gentle nod towards the fact that the Jonah it's not that it's true, but the wind does pick up when when Hollum dies. Yeah. <laughs> There's still <laughs> It's uh, the the screenplay is, is built in that way, so it it does just make a little nod towards that. It's not saying that it's because Hollem died, but certainly we know the sailors would think, <laughs> look, there you go. That's all the evidence you need, isn't it?
1: Yeah, which I'm sure would have made the doctor furious if, if he'd heard that. But And Hollem, you know, I think that's a great you know, talk about hierarchies and survival of the fittest. There's a man who couldn't understand his place in the hierarchy and didn't survive. They don't really spare you how ugly that is. Yeah. Which I thought was interesting.
0: Uh, so one thing I'd like to just go over quickly for the listeners as well It's basically just a summary of what the book The Far Side of the World was about. I've just looked up the general plot of it, but essentially it's that Aubrey is sent on a mission. To protect British whalers from the USS Norfolk. This is in 1812. So during the war. of. And this is a real event.
1: Yeah. Uh, in, in real life, it was the it was the USS Essex, not the Norfolk. But this element of the story is based on a real event.
0: Well, that's interesting. So the, the boat was also named after a county. So they just named. The-
1: yeah, I just <laughs> moved to a different
0: county. So Aubrey recruits for this particular expedition. A few new characters to the series: Mr. Allen, who has this in-depth knowledge of whaling; Mr. Martin, to be a schoolmaster to the young officers; and Hollem, who is an aging midshipman. In the book, he's forty, so he's definitely past it. And Oof,
1: man, that's forty-year-old midshipman. That's pretty bad. Yeah,
0: in it, it actually goes down gradually. In the screenplay, he's thirty, I think, and in I noticed that. Yeah, and in the film, I think, I think he's, he's twenty. 20. 26, 26 like yeah, So, or, or the other way around. Um, but yeah, they, they even brought it down to emphasize that. But in, in the book, The Far Side of the World, he's 40. Aubrey does suspect from the beginning that he's brought a Jonah on board. And then some of the, the major differences here, I think there's two big ones. One is the fact that Patrick O'Brien has a bit of a reputation for writing novels with less action that wouldn't be conductive to this kind of blockbuster filmmaking. So it seems very natural that the writers would want to adapt it a little bit more to have a bit more conflict between the two primary vessels from the very start. But essentially that first scene when they get attacked, I think, is replaced by their mast gets damaged by lightning as they're going around Brazil. And then they see the Norfolk passing by as they're repairing it. And then the second big difference is that there's a female character on board who is the gunner's wife called Mrs. Horner, and she gets pregnant with Holland's child. Oh. And Mataran refuses to get involved as she's seeking an abortion, and it's Higgins is the one who carries out the abortion, and Mataran ends up saving her life. And then when they get to the island's, they they make another stop at the the San Fernandez Islands before they get to the Galapagos, and Holmer and Mrs. Horner are killed by Mr. Horner. So those two big differences. I think you're introducing. Firstly, the change is necessary with having the two ships actually come into conflict straight away. I think that made for a much more compelling beginning to the the story. You don't really want your characters to be just responding to the elements in the first act of a screenplay. You kind of want there to be an identifiable enemy. And maintaining the conflict in this screenplay must have been quite hard, I think, because there's, there is a strong sense that there is a, a strict hierarchy on board. But the main conflict couldn't have been just them against the French for the entirety of the story. So a lot of the conflict is brought back on board the ship. And it's about the conflict that breaks out between the different sailors, the different characters that are all living in what is essentially a very enclosed, very small space. There's, I think it's a, a crew of about 100 at least.
1: I think 130,
0: something like that. Just ab- aboard this floating, you know, with, with no privacy whatsoever. And then the change to the Holland story that's debatable whether or not the other story does sound quite, quite compelling. To be honest, it's, yeah. it sounds very interesting, but maybe maybe they wanted to back away, especially maybe from the idea of abortion, but also just kind of the complications that might have arisen by having one character having a wife on board and this kind of stuff. And they, they really focused it entirely on Hollum and his actions and his own inability to live up to the expectations that are set for him and his own ambitions in life.
1: Yeah, I mean, it certainly simplifies that storyline quite a bit. There's a lot more room for ambiguity in the book version, it seems to me, than you know, just a straightforward, you know, this guy is, is too weak for the job and is, you know, trying to be the men's friend instead of their leader and he can't hack it. Like you said at the beginning, you know, they have to be so economical here, particularly with so much source material. So I think it's yeah, you know, that is boiling that down to its, that particular element down to its essence, I think was a smart choice.
0: Yeah, I think the whole idea is just to not have too much plot and to have a bit more understandable story just on screen where, where scenes feel a bit more familiar so that we can access this world a little more easily. It, it is a bit overwhelming at first reading it and and also the experience of watching it just in terms of trying to get to grips with the huge cast of characters so again maybe introducing all these different romantic storylines below that would have just made it a bit more complicated i'm not too sure
1: i think it also might have frankly just been weird for people the idea of women on naval vessels in that era which actually not at all uncommon but is not really typically a part of fiction set in that era you know maybe there's you know like a like a horatio hornblower story or something maybe there's going to be like a you know, a countess they're carrying somewhere or some, you know, some high status, wealthy passenger. But I think the the idea that, that women were part of military life back then, obviously not as soldiers or sailors, but that they were, you know, with their husbands or their sweethearts or boyfriends or pimps, unfortunately, sometimes that was quite typical back then and would remain so for like another 50, 60 years. But that's might be a bridge too far for another audience. We already got children on this ship, which is strange enough. That might have just been a bridge too far.
0: Actually, the introduction of the children on board, I think, makes for the most compelling big change to the storyline. It was focusing on the plight of one particular child, which is Birkeny, who is, I believe he's about 12 years old. It, It doesn't specifically say so in the screenplay. He's probably in the range of about 12 to 14, I would think.
1: The screenplay I think says thirteen, but oh, to me that 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 did not that did not strike through to me. That he seemed a lot younger than that to me, which was not uh, untypical. Um, Horatio Nelson was eleven when he entered the navy; ten or eleven was quite common, and even younger than that. I mean, people didn't have birth certificates back then, so <laughs> I, I actually that's one of my favorite parts of this movie is that they don't shy away from that, um, because that is one of the biggest differences when you look at army and navy life back then versus now. And I think it goes a long way to explaining, you know, how do you create a man like Jack Aubrey? Well, that's the only life he's ever known. It makes a lot more sense, I think, when you see someone at the beginning of that progression, the people who we see who are at the end, make a lot more sense to us.
0: So you have a couple of episodes in the Age of Napoleon podcast, where you talk about Nelson's upbringing, and you go into a lot of detail about this, about the kind of career path that a young officer would take, but would you be able to summarize it quite quickly, just the general experience of someone who would become eventually a tenant or a a captain on one of these boats?
1: So they start out um, as midshipman, which is, um, it is a officer's rank, you know, same as any other officer, but it's like, it's more, I mean, basically they're interns, really. They are helping out and learning the business by doing it. You know, It's very common to take a midshipman and say, you know, your job today is to supervise these men while they do this. And basically what the midshipman was really doing was making sure they didn't slack off and then watching them and actually learning the task that they were doing. And while they're doing that, they are also studying for the lieutenant's exam, which is the all-important thing in the Royal Navy. It's a very strict and difficult uh, oral examination before a board of captains, three of them. You know, they did their best to make it extremely intimidating. Not uncommon to fail once, although failing twice like uh, uh, the uh, Mr. Haro was not, not typical. So basically they are, you know, they're, they're kids. They're learning. And they're also commanding men in battle sometimes, <laughs> as we saw. Uh, it's a very strange convention, but... That is how they trained naval officers until relatively recently. There were teenage boys on British vessels during World War One, So that's not, a, by any means, an, an old practice. And it was a really difficult life. A lot of them washed out. A lot of them never made it, needed a little influence sometimes to get through that exam. It helped. When Nelson took it, his uncle was one of the supervisors. So that helps.
0: Yeah, exactly. And that's... so if
1: you... If you didn't know what you were doing and you didn't have a someone to watch your back, you probably wouldn't make it. But that process, I mean, that, that generation, they created a lot of, you read about the things these people did and it seems like it should be impossible. You know, the movie really does not, if anything, the movie doesn't depict some of the wilder things you get. I mean, you know, there's stories of guys, you know, sailing a burning ship into an enemy fleet and then jumping off and swimming back to their own fleet master and commander in a certain sense is more understated than real life because in real life there were sometimes these spectacular crazy things that read like fiction and it was this this really difficult trial by fire starting at like age 10 or 11 that produced people who were capable of doing these things
0: i think that's always a difficult question where it's the extent to which you you want to exaggerate things for the effect and Often when someone starts out writing this kind of screenplay, they're thinking, how closely should I tread to the source material? But you also don't want to do something that really happened if it seems completely unbelievable, no matter, Mm -hmm. unless it's the center of the story itself. It's a stranger than fiction style based on a true story concept. You, You want to just basically say, I want the audience to believe what I'm showing them. And if everything seems completely insane, they're not going to buy it.
1: Jack Aubrey is you know, obviously a composite. Uh, there's a, some of Nelson in there. Uh, there's also a lot of um, uh, influence from a real life character uh, uh, named Thomas Cochran, who was a Royal Navy captain during this period. That's always one of those things. People ask me, you know, what would be like a dream project? And I would love to see someone do a Thomas Cochran miniseries because this guy's life was just beyond crazy. And I think one of the big hurdles to it would be that it seems made up. Mm. This guy's career... You know, some of the things he did, they read like a bad fiction writer wrote them, but they really happened. He at one point uh, went to he got hired by the Chilean government during their war of independence to build their navy. And uh, they basically just said, you know, we need you. Get over here however you can. And uh, he said, "Okay, I'm coming. And his thought was, I'm going to go to St. Helena and bust Napoleon out of jail. He's the best general in the world, of course. If the Chileans are fighting this war, they need him. And the only thing that stopped him was that on his way, Napoleon died. Think of that, if there was a Master and Commander movie where Jack Aubrey broke Napoleon <laughs> out of jail to go conquer South America. That sounds insane, but it really happened.
0: That, actually, that does sound like a good film. <laughs> and, and one of those crazy crossroads of history where, yeah, if Napoleon hadn't have died, anything could have happened, I suppose.
1: So one thing I wanted to bring up that I yeah. would be, to me, one of the only negatives reading the script I was kind of disappointed. There was so much good material in there about the French captain. And I really liked the idea of having him as kind of a foil and mirror to Aubrey. And this idea that there's, you know, that there's someone on that ship who's like him. They do that a little bit in the movie, but they do it a lot in the script. And Mm -hmm. I would have, I would, it bummed me out to read that and think and, and see how much more engaging that was when it was more fully realized.
0: Yeah, that's a good point. I, I do think that towards the end, some of the momentum gets lost, some of the wind out of its sails, <laughs> <laughs> to use the bad pun. That did feel like it was set up for something. And the screenplay itself didn't even have the same ending as the film in terms of having Jack go off to chase after the, the captain who had duped him and clearly was still alive. That's not really addressed in the in the written version of the screenplay. And it feels like that was a an addition they made towards the end of pre-production was to think, hmm, maybe we didn't really address the uh, the French captain story at all.
1: In the script, they talk about that he was a because you know, they have to, I suppose, have some explanation for why the French are in this American ship. And uh, in in the script, they say, oh well, he was a he was a Republican. And when Napoleon seized power, he left to America. And then Napoleon offered him a letter of Mark, and so he took it. And I like that because, you know, one of the things we see with with Aubrey and Maturin is that they're, you know, they seem like they politically maybe would not be, uh, Maturin especially, you could picture him being on the other side Mm -hmm. on on an ideological level. Because that is something that you notice quite a bit with the officers in this era, is that their sympathies are kind of torn. And I like the idea of, yeah, the guys on the French ship are having those exact same moral problems and questions of: Is fighting for our fatherland worth it when there's this guy in charge? Maybe we don't like, or maybe there's aspects of the the political system or the social system we don't like. Is it still worth it? Sacrificing for this? I liked very much the idea of seeing Maturin kind of play on on Aubrey's uh, conscience, and then thinking that on the French ship maybe their version of Maturin is having the exact same conversation with their captain, about Napoleon. And I really liked uh, the symmetry of that. And then, you know, it's it would have been one line. The movie's not that long, and they could have thrown that one line back in. I really enjoyed that in the screenplay, even if it didn't make it on the screen.
0: Yeah, there's um a kind of concept, which is you can keep making a film better until you reach a certain point where it's the best you're going to get out of that version of the film, and anything else you make would be a different film. mm With the point you're specifically bringing up, though, it just feels like maybe it was a little bit of a loss of potential from this screenplay that it was promising a little bit more than it actually gave us in the end, just in terms of the enemy and them just not being this shadowy figure on the horizon, the stuff of the Sailor's Legends, the Phantom ship, but that actually that ship is inhabited by real people who are just as compelling and just as interesting to learn about as the ones on the ship, the surprise that we're on.
1: Right. And, you know, maybe maybe there's another movie to be made. Maybe there's a uh, – someone could just do the uh, flip it Rashomon style and see the, uh, the French point of view on that. Talk about how, you know, we don't often see the Napoleonic Wars on screen. We really don't very often see the French perspective of the Napoleonic Wars on screen. There's very few, I don't think I've ever seen a movie about this period that is sort of unabashedly from the French perspective, from the perspective of someone who is loyal to Napoleon. And
0: uh, you might get it in fiction. You might get it in some novels like Stondal or someone like that. But yeah, very, I don't think there is any cinematic equivalent. Huh?
1: Which is too bad because, you know, these contradictions that we've been talking about old and new and uh, the compromises one makes with what you believe and what your duty is, those are a lot more stark on the French side. You know, in a sense, much like much like the Americans did when we were on top, the, the British kind of are by the strength of their political system and social system spared from having to think too much about that stuff in that period their ideological cause is a broad enough tent to include basically everyone in their country. Whereas in the in France, people had to make decisions about, you know, fighting for the king or fighting for the revolution. And, I, and to me, that's a much more interesting
0: conflict. Theoretically, some of that's brought in in Patrick O'Brien's novels. I believe that there's more of a spying game that Mataran is involved in, that he's got his own history from his time in continental Europe and that Aubrey and Mataran visit France at different points during the series and and things like this. But of course, I suppose there were questions about how expansive can this world be, and how much should be left for a potential future sequel. I do think this film was set up with the intention of forming a franchise of some kind. Just the film's title, Master and Commander, The Far Side of the World, it, it suggests that there was going to be another Master and Commander with a a new subtitle for, for each installment. Mm. And to think about this as a project, what are you trying to get across to an audience in terms of what will you get every time you hear those words, master and commander? You're looking for Aubrey and Stephen Maturin, essentially. You're, you're looking at the interplay between these two characters, and they really get at each other's throats in the screenplay version, yeah. and it's, it's toned down a little bit in the film, I feel, that it's through the performances of Russell Crowe and Paul Bettany, you they're always able to convey just enough underlying sympathy for each other in those unspoken actions, in their own way of acting around each other, that in the screenplay it really feels like they're just getting at each other's throats at one point and that essentially all is lost after they've had this big argument and they basically aren't going to talk to each other again.
1: They, they, they almost imply they're about to fight a duel. Hmm. which um, is always always fun when the dual threats start flying. <laughs> That's something that kind of bump there, there's so much good dialogue in the screenplay that doesn't make it onto the screen. And when I first finished the screenplay after watching it, I was kind of bummed out thinking, oh, there's you know we could, I would have loved to have seen that scene with those great actors playing it out. But on the other hand, you know, I thought about it again. and one of the things I like so much about this movie is they, they, they take their time in showing you, the routines and just kind of the daily life on the ship. And I think if the screenplay had been, if, if, if there, it had been wordier, we might've lost some of that. Some of the, you know, the silences and, you know, the sequences of just music and and men doing their, doing their duties. And I think that kind of showing that, the, the portrait of the ship and how the ship works and how the men do their duties, that is, you know, if it was an either or between including more of the dialogue and including more of that, Well, they probably made the right call, in my opinion.
0: Maybe let's just talk a little bit about the two main characters, because they are basically the promise of the series and what you would be coming back for if there was going to be another another film. And they're obviously the main dynamic in the Patrick O'Brien novels. In the screenplay, Jack Aubrey is he's quite simply described. He's just called a strong faced man in his late 20s, thick blonde hair clubbed at the back. So you, we don't really get that much in terms of physical description of the character. I think as a screenwriter, you can assume that with a project like this, you can trust your costume and set designers to really transform your main actor into whatever an officer should look like from this time period. and I'd say on the whole, it seems like they kind of did a good job with that. Maybe there's like one or two scenes where he's got his white shirt only and it's kind of open and a bit more of a, (laughs) a bit more of a Hollywood action hero style. Fabio looking, yeah. (laughs) Mm. But what's interesting is we don't actually get too much description of who Aubrey is. So we can kind of go back to the books to fill in those details. As we've already talked about, we know he joined the Navy at a very young age in the books, I believe he first went to sea at the age of 12, and he was reprimanded a couple of times for misbehavior as a, as a young man. But he also, this is referred to in the screenplay, that he, he fought at the Battle of the Nile in 1798, which was the huge British counter against Napoleon's invasion of Egypt, mm. which was a tremendous success for the British. So also ties him closely into that story of Horatio Nelson, who is his hero as he was for most people in the Navy at that time. But it seems like Nelson had a particularly profound influence on Aubrey by the fact that they had served together and that he'd come into contact with him a couple of times. The other kind of character features are that he's a bit of a womanizer. I think he gets into a lot of trouble by having affairs with the wives of other officers at different points during the novel series. He's got a mathematical mind, and he's into astronomy and playing violin, but otherwise he's not particularly cultured. There's kind of a, a running joke that he gets his proverbs mixed up. I suppose the word we use for it now is malapropisms. You know, he'll he'll uh-huh. he'll put the wrong word into into a saying, which always kind of suggests that he's not as educated as he's pretending to be.
1: I love that touch because that's such a um, you know, that kind of being able to quote, kind of have always have the bomb, That's like a very 18th century striver type thing is to, you know, have you have your little bank of quotations that you can spout off and sound smart. You read about that all the time people, you know, oh, wow, yeah, he he quoted Aeschylus at just the right moment. Mm-hmm. And uh, I love the idea of a character like that, with that background and, and that kind of, uh, you know, with sort of one foot in high culture, but this very low culture job. That uh, seems like a perfect note for someone like that.
0: And then uh, Stephen Maturin, he's the son of an Irish officer in the Royal Navy and a Catalan woman. He was brought up as a Catholic in County Clare and in Catalonia. He studied medicine in Dublin and Paris and supported the French Revolution at the time when he was in Paris. But he becomes disillusioned with politics and does not join the United Irishmen in 1798 he is fluent in many languages and picks up languages very easily as well. So he, I think throughout the novel series, he picks up the languages of the areas that they are traveling in. In the film, it's just kind of alluded to once that he he's able to talk Portuguese to the traders that come out to meet the ship at one point. The one thing he's not capable of doing and getting his head around is the naval jargon, which allows him to be a character to whom all of the difficult language revolving around activities on the ship can be explained to the audience right and another thing that's missing aside from the fact he's he is a scientist in this film the extent to which it really captures his character and the fact he also has this kind of secret identity as a as a spy some of that's kind of toned down a little bit in in the screenplay because we're just being introduced to the character but one thing that is was in the screenplay and seems to have been removed from the film is also the fact he's an opium addict which was quite common
1: i thought that was very interesting Uh, yeah like you said very very common for doctors and surgeons back then it made me wonder because he has kind of a pallor in some scenes and it made me wonder if maybe there are scenes of him using laudanum you know somewhere on the cutting room floor there because i you know it it adds another dimension to that character. They also, I, I notice, um, the screenplay has a lot more scenes of him actually working as a surgeon. Yes. Um, yeah. In the screenplay, that whole, that whole first battle, we're going back and forth between on deck and the infirmary. I thought that would have made a nice, added some more depth to that character if we'd maybe seen more of him at work and then the toll that that's taking on him.
0: Yeah, he comes across a little bit too much as a Puritan at times. He's, yes. he's trying to advise Jack to to not let the men drink on board, which sounds absolutely insane to say to, in the Royal Navy at any period of history, let alone this one, to, that they, the sailors shouldn't have alcohol.
1: Yeah, that, that was one of the few parts of the script that struck me kind of as, didn't fully ring true as historically accurate, because I don't think anyone who spent time on a Royal Navy ship would think that that was a realistic possibility. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they were mad. They were mad, and I think it was 1976 when they issued the last rum ration, and people were mad in 1976. So you can only imagine back then.
0: Yeah, actually, uh, living in San Diego, which is a naval town, I've spoken to people in the Navy, and they, you know, if I've mentioned I'm I'm English, they've usually got a story or something about some time they've been in England. And uh, I remember one one guy saying to me that. The British sailors were invited on board their ship to, for an inspection and just to see how the U.S. Navy was doing things. And one of the sailors asked him, "Where do you where do you keep all the booze?" And he was just <laughs> you know, flabbergasted by this, like, "What well, what are you talking about the booze?" <laughs> but obviously, <laughs> to the to see, the we English, we had real sailors.
1: Puritans in our navy, not just not just screen Puritans. And so yeah. they got rid of that in the 1850s here. But you used to get your whiskey ration in the U.S. Navy. For the first like 80 years it was
0: around okay so during the time that this is set it was still you know everyone yeah Yeah. so yeah these are our two main characters i think aubrey's character is captured pretty well i can't think of any scenes that would be missing to introduce any elements of the character that are specifically um kind of called out in that character description we do see his silver medal of the nile at one point uh, i think when he's reading the funeral rites for the sailors that died in the last battle, that he's wearing it, and that's one of his character traits, as he always wears this in, on formal occasions. But I can't really think of anything, aside from casting, that would really change the version of Aubrey that we got on screen. I think, yes, we do get Russell Crowe. He is playing someone quite similar to Maximus. I think his... <coughs> You know, I'd always wondered if Maximus was meant to have a British accent, and I think it's just clear this is the accent that Russell Crowe uses when he's trying (laughs) to be British. You know, it's not a bad effort, but it certainly doesn't sound like it belongs to any particular region that I'm aware of. But aside from that, I can't think of anything that would really need to change with Aubrey. I think he's essentially the the scenes that we get of him, we get enough of the violin, we get enough of his his navigational skills, his leadership, his bravery, his his aggression in battle as well. All of that I think is We even
1: get his uh, his corny sense of humor. Yeah. Yeah. Which is I I think a great little touch because that character I think could could seem a little too superhero y, but you know, he loves a good pun. And I think that's a that's a great a nice little touch. It's humanizing.
0: Yeah, the the lesser of two weevils. In particular, right, just the... Surprise on our side. Yeah, the awkwardness of all of that. One of the things I think gets into his character in the screenplay really well is that he jumps overboard at one point to save uh, Birkney. I don't think that was in the film. Correct me if you saw that. I think that was taken out. So I can see why that needed to be removed. And the reason I think that needed to be removed is that he throws himself overboard to save Birkney. But when uh, Warley goes overboard, it's right. Jack who cuts the ropes. And there's too much of a contrast. Those scenes actually take place relatively close to each other in the screenplay. And there's too much of a contrast with, oh, this guy would throw himself overboard to save one person, and then a scene later he won't do it. And maybe there's some subtext there about the fact that Burkney is the son of one of his, his friends and is is a lord. Is a lord, exactly. He's of nobler blood. But there's just that sense of like, is he someone who will risk his life for his men? Or is he a leader who makes those tough decisions and will cut someone loose if it's going to save the rest of the crew? And having those two things too closely together maybe just would be a bit confusing as what kind of character are we really getting here? Well,
1: that's something that, um, you know, things that to me that, because I'm looking at this from the perspective of... What do I see that's, to me, a defining feature of that era of Royal Navy history that we don't see on the screen? And one thing that they don't really depict, and I understand why, is the kind of the darker side of, you know, probably, yeah, the Jack Aubrey, a real life Jack Aubrey probably would save a lord before he saved a common man. That guy's father could make trouble for him if he didn't. They don't really get into the prize system. I mean, Lord Nelson did horrible things to get his hands on that prize money. I mean, these guys were paid, it's really bizarre to think, but they were paid on like a commission system for war. And Royal Navy captains were famous for taking risks, even costing people their lives, to get paid out, um, out of the prize system. And that's barely touched on. Um, the book actually does a much better job of depicting that. You know, He's in, in hock to his prize agent in the book. But again, I understand that that's sort of outside the scope of what they were trying to do with this. It would have been fun to see, though.
0: There's a sense there that he is portrayed as someone who Stephen calls him out on this. He's like, you're making this a personal vendetta against the Acheron and you're you're not acting rationally anymore. But that subtext could have been introduced as well to say, are you just getting greedy? Are you just after the prize money at this point? Because what he's doing, it becomes more about just the character is determined to win at any cost. Yeah, underlying that, we know the, the kind of money you could get off a prize in taking a ship, it would be equivalent to hundreds of thousands, if not millions today, dependent on if you were a captain and the, the actual goods that they were able to seize.
1: There's a famous incident from Nelson's career where he was pitching this. He had this idea for an operation and he was pitching it to the army because it was a, a land sea operation, and the army colonels that he pitched it to were basically like, "This is insane. We can't do this. No one can do this." And Nelson's response was, "Well, I'll cut you in. <laughs> I'll give you a third of the money." <laughs> and it's it's very strange to think of this guy who's a you know a big national hero, and he sounds like a mercenary captain sometimes when he's talking, and it's it's uh, an aspect of that life that was always present. And you don't, you don't, we, we don't really see it in this movie, which, again, a lot of ground to cover, uh, understandable that they couldn't touch on everything, but um, that, that is something that's absent.
0: Yeah, and the fact that much more of this piracy is coming from these letters of Mark that you referred to before. The fact that there was just this legitimization of seizing merchant vessels, provided that they were operating for the other country, the country you were at war with. <laughs> and you even...
1: During the Seven Years' War, the uh, British, uh, the stock jobbers at the London Stock Exchange got in trouble with the government because it came out that they were actually investing in French privateers. Well, then then, it was to yeah. hedge their investments. Yeah. You know, if you've got an investment in coffee and the coffee ship gets taken by the privateers, well, if you're an investor in the privateer ship too, you still get some of your money back. And the government had to come in and say, no, you cannot finance the enemy war effort during a war. But yeah, those. it's very... Uh, Warfare in that era had, a, had a, an edge to it that was very heartless and mercenary. I mean, to us, that would be treason funding the enemy war effort. But so I had to step in and say, no, that's actually treason. You can't do that.
0: Let's talk about uh, Steven now as well, just as his his character. I think I think Steven is a character who we do miss out on a little bit of the potential of that character because he is such a complicated character. There's so many different aspects of his his nature that you can talk about. The fact he's a doctor and a physician, the fact that he's a revolutionary, the fact that he's a spy, the fact that he is a language expert, let alone all of the dynamics between his history with, with Aubrey and the kind of romantic relationships that he gets into along the course of the different novels and all of these different things. There's so much to try and cram in there. I think the screenplay did a decent job of visually emphasizing his scientific nature to us having him Mm. constantly going below deck to read and to research and to experiment and to be involved in the surgeries on the ship in a very graphic way that allowed us to see the the extent to which a person like him was absolutely necessary in order to maybe save lives but the, the kind of tools and the knowledge that they're working with is it's amputations. It's still a bit closer to the butcher's shop than the modern surgery.
1: And I think they did a really good job of, you know, it's funny. um I hadn't seen this movie in years before I came back to it to do this. And um when we started nearing the, the self-surgery scene, I was kind of stealing myself to see it. You know, it's not it's not pleasant. Uh, they really make you feel. The, the Jeopardy there. And then it came, and I realized they don't actually show you t- too much of that. It's a very short sequence. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they actually don't show you a ton. You know, we're, we're mo- looking at it mostly indirectly through that mirror that he has set up. And it's amazing how that, that made such an impression on me that I remembered it years later, you know, so so vividly. But it's really, I mean, it's like maybe three minutes or something. It's really short and, they, and not actually terribly graphic. But they do a very good job of hammering home just what a delicate and really difficult in every sense of the word operation that would be.
0: With Burkney as well, the fact he is such a young child and he's got to go through this this amputation. It's something that makes it hard to watch. And you know, I think Hitchcock would have been proud with the way that this is is cut because it does leave <laughs> more of an impression on us than yes, we actually exactly. ever saw but again it's the context it's it's the doctor operating on himself it's the doctor operating on a child those two things are are not pleasant to look at there's actually a scene in gladiator early on and we we read the the screenplay for gladiator for this podcast as well and early on in gladiator after the first battle there's mention of the post battle surgery essentially you know the the medical tents with essentially no medical knowledge whatsoever. You know, the the extent to which the Romans had any knowledge of, of how to treat wounds, much more limited, but only just a little bit more limited, I suppose, than the early 1800s. But I don't think that scene made the lasting impression on anyone that these kind of scenes did, because it doesn't have that vulnerability in it. You're just seeing soldiers who you've seen are perfectly capable of hacking a grown man to death, you know. But the, <laughs> the difference here is, uh, we're dealing with characters like Stephen, who is his—he's he's not a, a violent figure. He's—he's he's quite timid. He's—he's—he's he's, he's not really the first guy who's going to pick up a gun and charge over onto the other ship. And then Berkeley obviously, he's too young. He's just been caught up in this situation and ended up losing an arm in, in a tragic accident. So that vulnerability that's introduced there, I think, that really helps us feel the pain of those two moments. And thus, I suppose, learn through it those kind of horrible realities of how limited medicine was at that time.
1: Yeah, one thing it's always, you know, it's funny to me when you first see this movie, and you're first introduced to the Maturin character and you see him, you know, fencing intellectually with the captain and he doesn't quite fit in. you You know, there's no one else like him on the ship, really, other than Aubrey, who's not really actually very much like him. And you kind of struck by, you know, why do they tolerate this man? Yeah. <laughs> and then, well, you have your answer. It's because he's the only one who can do the things that he does. And he's the only one who can help them when I mean he does brain surgery on a guy. <laughs> no one else on that ship is going to do brain surgery.
0: Yeah, and and we see that when he does get shot, that his assistant doesn't even feel capable of removing the the bit of shirt that's stuck in his in his wound that's beyond his assistant so it's always kind of part of the character i believe that he is meant to be far more educated than the average physician would have been at this time Mm -hmm. but that's also what kind of makes him a compelling character just in the way that aubrey can be an exceptional captain you've also got this very exceptional doctor not just some guy who's going to hack off limbs at, at random yeah
1: and you know that's not um you know, if you go through your scientific history in this era, they were attracting a, 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 a good class of physicians to be these ships doctors because, you know, we actually saw the movie does a pretty good job of illustrating why a man of science would want to be on a ship like that. And it's because how else are you going to get to the Galapagos? How else are you going to you know, get this hands on experience with um, all these combat wounds? There, there was no other way this, you know, the hundred years or so around this, you do see all kinds of scientific discoveries being made by by Royal Navy ship's doctors.
0: So we just talked about the two characters, Stephen and, uh, and Jack. And usually on the podcast, the elements of the screenplay I discuss are character, dialogue, story, theme, and plot. And we've covered most of that, I think, already, but dialogue in particular, how I felt that, with my limited knowledge, there was a significant effort to make the dialogue very accurate for the time period. And also that in the film version, they clearly felt that the dialogue from the screenplay wasn't clear enough. There's these added lines in where (laughs) it's almost as if a character occasionally would just say something in plain English, just to make sure that everyone's caught up. It's just—it's almost like a sidebar to the audience that that yeah. just someone would just say something nice and clearly, just so directly, like that that ships over there, or just something—you know—just something like really, because you know you're hearing, we're not even hearing the word starboard, which we might know, you know, we're hearing yeah. alarboard and stuff like that. We're hearing variations already on vocabulary that's com- complicated for us.
1: Yeah, I, I noticed that as well. I think, though, in general, they did a really good job of splitting the difference between, I mean, much as I enjoy that, that 18th century dialogue in, on the page, I don't think that that would have translated at all to the screen. And I think it would have been hard for people to follow. So I don't blame them for not hewing to that. And I think they, were, they do a good job of, of simplifying things and modernizing things without going fully into just speaking modern English. It doesn't actually take you out of the narrative. There is one thing, one of the characters says, okay, <laughs> which I hate. Okay, did not exist back then. No one was okay. But other than that, it's hard to find, you know, straight up anachronisms the way you can in most Hollywood films. So I think they did a really good job. Also, no period accurate dialect. You know, in, in reality, the, the, that would have had like very old timey West country English yars and yours and mm-hmm. stuff. And they don't really do that which is probably good because that also I don't think would have translated. It would have sounded like a bad pirate movie.
0: Yeah, there's a, there's a lot of dynamics involved in which kind of dialect to use with with England being such a complicated uh, tapestry of different regional dialects. And then you have class involved as well. Officers would have spoken in a, in a different way to, to the general public, to the sailors in this case. One thing that I did think was interesting in the criticism of the film that I read from Christopher Hitchens, who was a big oh. fan of the books, and one of the things he, he disliked, aside from what he thought was just a an unwillingness to get involved in the worst aspects of what life at sea was like, which I think already we're getting quite a decent view of some of the yeah. brutality. But one of the things he didn't like was that uh, Stephen Matter in, had an english accent but i think that someone who was so you know highly born as stephen Maturin actually would have had an english accent despite being irish
1: would have cultivated it yeah yeah. um yeah the duke of wellington was from ireland too how do you think he sounded
0: yes not (laughs) not particularly (laughs) irish (laughs) i can imagine
1: but uh yeah it's you know that's one of those things that's um there was a, a tv series uh turn which was set during the american revolution and they actually did – they must have had a, a, some kind of good accent coach because, like, every character in that has a special, specific way that they speak. And it was really cool, like, as a, as a student of history to see that because that's only really something you imagine, particularly America in that era. You know, basically just every person has their own accent because they're all from different regions of England, Scotland, Ireland, whatever. So that was really interesting to see. But I think it, it would have been very distracting – particularly in a movie where the dialogue is already going to be challenging for some people to have someone actually go back and, you know, speak like, you know, they're a, you know, Norfolk fisherman from, you know, born in 1750. That's going to be sound very alien, even to modern English people. So the idea that, you know, people in the American suburbs are going to go to the theater and see that that's way too far. I think I'm actually impressed by how little compromise they made. I guess I'm being, being contrary into Hitchens here, but th- think of another movie at this this level, this you know budget that has that type of dialogue. I can't think of one.
0: Yeah, not not at this budgetary level. There, there have been some good films that have done a very good job. Bright Star. I don't know if you've seen that, but that's a, a film about the life of John Keats and that is filmed entirely in the correct. Register of English as well, but it's also quite an unknown independent production. I mean, Jane Campion is the uh, the director, so she's quite well known. Oh. But you know, th- this isn't the kind of film that is being shown at every theater across America. It was just it probably got a very small release. So yeah, Master and Commander was very bold in that way for for really trying to approach the dialogue as part of the identity and. That's part of the promise of it as a film series as well, was just kind of we're going to do this really accurate historical thing. And of course, you know, history has now told us that Disney's approach with Pirates of the Caribbean is the version of this story (laughs) that will that will win out in the end. But for just yeah, people who are passionate about history, this is a, a little bit of a gem, the fact that this did get made and that so much effort was put in to to make sure the costume was accurate, the setting was accurate, to simplify it enough to make it accessible. One of the tasks of a historical film almost isn't to portray history perfectly accurately. It's actually to get people inquisitive enough to learn for themselves, to say, oh, I loved that film so much that I now want to go and learn what really happened. I now want to go and study this at a higher level. And I think that Gladiator actually was one of those films that had that impact on people of I'm guessing we're probably around the same generation that, you know, like Gladiator would have come out when you were maybe a teenager, something like that.
1: Yeah, I had I had to do I had a hard time getting into it because it was rated R, but I was a teenager.
0: Yeah, I mean I, I remember I had to get my my dad to rent it for me from Blockbuster because it was, (laughs) yeah, it would have been, it was a 15 in England, but I was under the age of 15. I must have been only like 11 or something when it came out. So I got to see it on VHS when I was maybe 13 or something like that. But yeah, you know, that, that film, I think not particularly historically accurate, but (laughs) got a lot of young people interested in learning more about the Roman empire. Yeah.
1: And, you know, honestly, what do you walk away from when you see gladiator? I think people are aware that stories are stories and we shouldn't read them all as gospel. And I think the impression you walk away with of the Roman Empire from that, you know, I think that's a pretty it's a fine working knowledge for a layman to have. Mm. You know, that's something I think about all the time with with what I do is, you know, how deep do I really want to go? You know, how how many contradictions do I have to introduce before it becomes pointless to introduce any information at all? And it's a trap that I think you can fall into sometimes with historical fiction is being too didactic, Um, you know, trying to impart facts to people rather than, you know, just trying to capture a feeling or a mindset. And that's what I like about this movie is, you know, it's not, I mean, the story is great, but I think what really makes it special is that it is so immersive and that it does give you kind of a, you know, I think if you watch Master and Commander, you walk out of it with a little bit of a, Little bit of an 18th century Royal Navy mindset. And you kind of, you don't just have this nice story in your back pocket, you sort of have a little bit of an appreciation for what was important to those people and how they thought about things and what their world was about. And I think that that's more valuable than someone being able to rattle off, you know, how many cannon do you need to qualify as a man of war instead of a frigate. That's
0: not what's important for fiction. No, yeah, it's, it's kind of about creating that sense of having experienced something. And the fact that yes. this boat goes through storms, it goes through battles where major parts of the side of the ship are just burst open, people, their arms get broken. These are not explosive shells. This is, this is a ball. It's just an iron ball that is flying at a phenomenally fast <laughs> speed and it's but it's not going to explode it's not going to send out the 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 shrapnel is basically just the wood that's that it's piercing to get through into into the interior of the ship but if you get hit by one of those things that's going to be a catastrophic in- injury but it's not the same as in, in an explosion it's not you're not going to get burnt by it you can like it's going to be a bludgeoning and that kind of you do get that sense from this film of just how terrifying those experiences must have been to be at sea to be surrounded by something that will kill you the sea itself Mm -hmm. will kill you if you go overboard and everyone is just crammed onto this vessel and fighting for survival against all kinds of different forces whether it's the weather whether it's the enemy and i think it does a very good job of capturing that sense of just what type of person would be able to survive that kind of lifestyle and how that lifestyle would change people and make them into the the kind of characters that we see. These kind of hard drinking, you know, life is short. That's that would be your takeaway, I think, is that life is very, very short.
1: And I think they also do a good job. And this is something that I wrestled with when I wrote my my little, you know, three hour biography of Nelson. There's something fun about it. These officers had a choice. Most of them, particularly, you know, someone at the rank of Aubrey could have retired, you know, that day if he'd wanted to. And this sense of, you know, it's this horrible, unpleasant thing that they've done, this life they've chosen. And yet there is an attraction for them. Some of them to the point where Nelson didn't like being on shore. He didn't like peace. He just wanted to be on the water fighting. And they do a good job, I think, of balancing They do show some of the nitty-gritty, I guess not enough for Christopher Hitchens, but they do get into that somewhat. But they also show the attraction of it. And that's, to me, I think part of what makes it compelling is that it's this this very ugly but exciting environment that they've created. And uh, you get the appeal of it, I think, a little bit.
0: Yeah, and that psychology, which I think maybe we have some modern equivalents to it in in a documentary like free solo for example which is about the free climbing of cliff sides and what kind of personality is motivated to climb without a rope it's living on the very edge and that that feeling can become very intoxicating and i think even with Mataran, that that same thing is coming up with him because he maybe he doesn't like the sea life it, it might not be his calling but what is his calling is the adventure. It's happening across a new coastline, some new islands, a new continent, and being able to get off the ship and explore and surround himself with the things that he is fascinated by, all these different species. And uh, presumably the novels go into more detail about everything that he's fascinated by. In the film, we just kind of get the sense that it's, it's the Galapagos themselves which mm. have been up to this point essentially unexplored by anyone who is scientifically minded. There's whalers going around there who want to hunt whales and <laughs> get the oil from from whales. It's the opposite to, to Stephen, who wants to capture these, these creatures alive and take them back to the Royal Society and show them all the, the biodiversity that's in the world. The fact that, again, the world is emerging from this moment where it was believed... Noah put two of every animal on the, on the ark. That's in the same Bible that they're getting the, the Jonah story from. Yeah. And the scientifically minded people are starting to question how could he have had two of every animal if I've just been to the Galapagos and I've just found yeah. species you've never even heard of.
1: And that, to me, you know, I mentioned this at the beginning, you know, that gets at the crux of why this era is so fascinating, is this, these men of the Enlightenment who are so excited about the world, and they're, you know, full of full of love for all mankind and the hope for the future, and they're fighting so hard to bring that world into being, and in the process of that fight, they're doing these horrible things. And how do you balance that, you know, your faith in, in whatever you're fighting for with the reality of that fight. And that's the interplay between Aubrey and Maturin is so great because that's what they're fighting about too. And that you know that same conflict, you know, I've read diaries of generals and sea captains and you can see that same conflict in a lot of these people who were intellectually minded. I've been doing this for 3 years. I don't know I don't know what the answer is. I don't know where you draw the line and say, all right, this is where, you know, your dream has failed and you know it's time to come back to reality. It's a it's a tough question.
0: One of the brilliant things about this screenplay and just what I think is instructional about it, in terms of what kind of takeaways I could have for my own writing or what you know a listener might think is a good takeaway for for how to construct a good compelling screenplay is, despite all of the historical stuff that we're talking about, the setting, everything like that. The fact you've got these two characters, Aubrey and Mataran, and they different and they're different enough to come into conflict it's the fact that there's these these circular motions in the screenplay where each one of them comes around to believing the other one's point of view so it's it's essentially when when jack prevents stephen from staying at the galapagos for a week because they've got to chase after the Acheron that's basically the moment where they're most separated and their two points of views cannot coexist. And as a result of the, I suppose, the plot elements, the fact that Stephen gets shot by accident and they and Jack comes around to believing, okay, the best thing for us right now, you know, I care about him. We need to keep him alive. We'll stop at the Galapagos. Then it's Mataran who has that kind of change of conscience. He's the one encouraging Jack, no, you sh- we should carry on now you know, I'm better. We should carry on and go after them. But they remain. And then obviously the Acheron has come back looking for more whalers. And it's the fact that it's actually Mataran's discovery of the stick insects. or well, maybe it's not a discovery. Maybe more people were aware of the stick insects, but it's the fact of his his explanation of the stick insect to, to Blakeney and then to Jack gives Jack that key idea of, An animal that disguises itself as something else gains a competitive advantage. And it's that use of Darwinism before Darwinism is even a concept. It's the fact that gives him that spark. If we disguise ourselves as whalers, they'll let their guard down. And I think that's just like the absolute crux of this story is that each of them learned something from the other one to the point that it saved them from the crisis that they were in.
1: Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And again, that's that gets extra force because of these you know bigger historical trends and forces behind it. It takes those big those big ideas and the, you know the grand sweep of history and it makes it something that you can actually look at on a page or on a screen and relate to like you would you know two people that you see in your regular life. Uh, and that's what is cool about historical fiction to me.
0: Yeah, there's there's parallels with you know Holmes and Watson and and these kind of characters that you can change that setting. House M.D. did that. Oh yeah, they brought the Holmes and Watson story into the early two thousands and set it in a, in a hospital. But essentially, the the enemies, the the cases to solve were medical cases as opposed to criminal cases. But by having the two kind of identities, you, you've got these polar opposites who at the end of the day kind of respect each other. That's what kind of makes Mataran and Aubrey a good duo as well, is that they disagree, but they respect each other enough to not take those disagreements too personally. And they're an odd couple, in a way, you know, they yeah. they they love each other despite certain things that kinda of get in each other's way and get on each mm-hmm. other's nerves. And having them kind of playing music together, I think that's a very nice audiovisual way of demonstrating something that's very hard to convey on screen is just the extent to which two characters might know and respect each other is the fact they are able to play music together so effortlessly that just makes us feel like okay these guys have known each other for a while i think sometimes with with writing these kind of stories that people overthink how am i going to convey all this information how many of Jack's campaigns are we going to have to talk about in the dialogue? Mm. You don't need to do any of that. Just show how they interact with each other in that way, mm. and then and people will just get it. They understand what's going on.
1: And that uh, the music, uh, you know, at the end, it's very explicit. It's just juxtaposed with how the ship functions. Um, you know, where the, the the music is this kind of, you know, very technical clockwork Enlightenment era classical music. And then the ship is running on kind of that same, you know, like a, like a finely tuned machine. Um, you know, and you need the, the harmony between the instruments and the people on the ship to do what they do.
0: Okay. Is there anything we haven't talked about? Do you think?
1: I think we covered, uh, everything and more. One stray observation, uh, that there's a lot more politics in the script than there is on screen. Again, probably a smart decision to cut that. Um, I found it interesting, but I'm not sure how much it added to everything else. Yeah, that's about it.
0: Yeah, I think with the with the screenplay, you kind of have to promise a lot, and once you've got those, you know, once you've got the boat, and once you've got the the cannons and the sails and the wind and the rain. Suddenly, some of that stuff doesn't seem as necessary anymore. You're like, okay, how much can we play around with all the materials at our disposal? Master and Commander, I think it was a great film. It was a very good screenplay. Obviously, neither of us are that well acquainted with the entire novel series, at least enough to say how accurate of an adaptation of Patrick O'Brien's novels it was. But in terms of actually just bringing to life that moment of history, it seems like Master and Commander did a really good job, probably better than most other historical films with this kind of budget.
1: I mean, I think, you know, to, to me, what stood out from the two thirds of that book that I've read so far is how immersive it is. And that is also what stands out about the movie. So, you know, on the most basic level, they seem to share that common characteristic.
0: Okay, very good. Well, um, I think the last thing I want to just cover is about the Age of Napoleon podcast. It's a free podcast. You can find it on everything: Apple Podcasts, Spotify, all of the the major platforms. Is there any point in the podcast you'd recommend listeners to to start out with?
1: Yeah, I mean, the beginning is the most logical. Obviously, um, it's totally chronological. Well, almost totally chronological. So, the beginning is usually what I recommend. But if it's just the Navy stuff that you like. I would recommend starting with the, uh, the episodes on Lord Nelson, which will give you just a nice short that gets about, I don't know, two and a half, three hours of material right there just on Nelson.
0: Cool. Well, Everett, thank you so much for joining me on this very deep dive into the early 19th century naval warfare and the British Navy and Master and Commander as a, you know, this whole big series that it is. Thank you
1: thank you for having me it was a lot of fun
0: awesome